We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada and the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. Well, I would like to welcome everyone who is joining us this evening live online. My name is Sean Buckley. I'm a lawyer that volunteers with the National Citizens Inquiry. And if I have a grin on my face tonight, it's just that I'm simply excited about this roundtable. I have practiced for the last, I'm working on year 30, um, where a large part of my practice has involved drug regulation. And I have the honor tonight to have as guests Deanna McLeod and Alan Castles, who are both experts in drug regulation. And I think we're gonna just have a fascinating conversation, but this is actually the first time in my life I've had two drug experts together to actually have a conversation. And likely this will be the only time that you will. And you might, you're likely gonna be very surprised about some of our thoughts on drug regulation and how it works. And we're also um, going to touch on the regulatory changes in the natural health product industry because it's part of the international harmonization of regulations. And we had guests like um, James Corbett of the Corbett Report on speaking about the World Health Organization and the international health regulations. And this is part of moving us into that type of model and so it'll just be interesting because uh, he was cautioning us that we could find ourselves in a situation where we really just don't have a choice on how we address things for the next pandemic, which is the focus of the National Citizens Inquiry. And I'm also um, really pleased about this topic because we're going to have people joining us because of this topic who know nothing about the National Citizens Inquiry. There's a, a large group of Canadians that are getting excited about the regulation of natural health products who will be joining us for the very first time. And I'd like to welcome you and just let you know about the National Citizens Inquiry. So we're just, we were a group of volunteers that got together with the vision 
of appointing independent commissioners, marching them across the country with the, the hope of having an, an independent inquiry and giving Canadians the opportunity to have a voice again and to start a national dialogue. So we held three days of hearings in each of eight cities, starting at Truro, Nova Scotia, Toronto, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Red Deer, Vancouver, Quebec City, and Ottawa. And if you have not watched any of the National Citizens Inquiry, you have to. You have to go to our website, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. And the challenge is just pick three witnesses and watch them. And it's the challenge because we know if you watch three witnesses, you're going to get hooked and you're going to watch more. And then it's going to change your life. Um, you will cry with us. You will laugh with us. And when, and when I say cry with us, there were times, and it was frequent, where the whole room and everyone participating, and you can't escape it if you're watching it, um, the video, where you weep. There so were times all of us mm -hmm. were weeping. There were times we were all laughing together, actually just experiencing each other's stories was just a fantastic thing. And we currently, so for everyone watching, um, we are streaming on Twitter tonight. We'll ask that you retweet us so that we can get this um, roundtable out to as many people as possible. And for everyone watching, we also ask that you join our This Is Canada campaign, where we've got a one-page flyer. You can have it printed off in, in color and cardstock at Staples. You can just print it off in grayscale on your computer. But Canada is 156 years old, and this is a, a flyer that basically just challenges people to pick three witnesses and watch and join the conversation. And um, what I've always loved about the NCI is just that people step up and they do things. And so um, my wife, Teresa, and I, we were at a, uh, a public event in southern Saskatchewan last week. And Teresa spoke about this campaign. And uh, we got word back about a whole number of towns now in southern Saskatchewan where every home has received this notice. And forgive me if I... You know, if you live in this town, and I, I botched the pronunciation of your town, but uh, every house in these towns have received this NCI flyer. So Rokenville, Mooseman, Esterhazy, Wapella, Whitewood, Macaulay, Manson, Elkhorn, Kirkella, and Wawota. And uh, to me, that's exciting because it's just people taking the initiative and doing things again. So um, please participate in this campaign. If the more people we get involved, the better. So I'd like to um, I'd like to just ask to uh, both of our guests. Uh, maybe Alan, we'll start with you, and then Deanna, just to you know, kind of give a, a bit of your background and how you got into specializing in in the area of, of drugs and drug regulations. And then I'll do the same, and we'll just jump into the conversation. Um, yeah, very briefly, I, I spent my early career as a naval officer. I was in the military, and uh, um, when I when I decided to become a civilian, I went back to university and started studying um, basically public public administration. I did a master's degree, and the area that I basically studied was pharmaceutical uh, regulation, and so it was a kind of a uh, a deep dive into um, into the way drugs are approved, the kinds of information that gets used uh, when physicians prescribe drugs, and you know how regulations work around marketing and, and, and advertising. And I started working in that field right away, and I 
really haven't stopped for 29 years. And along the way, I've written a couple of books. Um, I mean, this th this one, selling sickness, was the was probably the, 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 the my my first real entry into the uh, the world of uh, pharmaceutical industries. Um, incredible power, not just to promote drugs, but to promote certain conceptions of disease, uh, whether it's high cholesterol, osteoporosis, depression, and so on. And myself and my co-author, Ray, Ray Moynihan, did a very deep dive into, and, you know, we went to many international meetings and we really documented the way in which the industry has been able to in, insert itself into the practice of medicine. And that affects all of us in terms of how drugs get marketed, they get prescribed, how they get used, how they get safety tested and so on. And so that's kind of been my reality for almost 30 years. And uh, it's been an exciting ride. The last three years have been very exciting. <laughs> yeah. so, that's probably the softest adjective you could use. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Deanna, do you want to give us just kind of a brief outline of of how you got involved and tell us about the company that you started and what it does? Sure. Um, so uh, I started uh, in the industry probably in 91. So I, I spent uh, from 91 to 2000 working in pharmaceutical companies for three years in various capacities, um, some in, in, in medical research and some marketing and sales. So I, I kind of did a little bit of a tour there. And in 91, I decided to, or 2000, excuse me, I started to start a medical research firm. And the reason why I did that was because I was a little bit concerned with the bias or the spin that uh, was often put on data. Um, you know, we were trained to emphasize the benefits and minimize the risks. So you don't talk about the risks and you emphasize the benefits. And at times, uh, you know, it wasn't always the case with all companies, but with certain companies, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure to maybe not present the evidence in, in a balanced fashion. And what I wanted to do um, at the time in 2000, there really wasn't any organization that could go across the country because we're, you know, healthcare is provincially regulated and work with doctors from across the country to uh, weigh evidence in a balanced evidence-based fashion, independent fashion and uh, develop guidelines for cancer. And so that's, that's what we got into. And so in terms of my, you know, intersection with drug regulation, you know, when you're looking at novel therapies, we're continually working with novel therapies and therefore we have to have a really good understanding of what type of approval it is, what evidence you need to get that type of approval, you know, what precedents there are, what you have to compare, uh, you know, the drug to in order to get that approval, um, you know, and and how that should be adopted and integrated into care. This is a lot of what we talk about when we write our, our systematic reviews or our guidelines. And then, you know, and when we're having conversations with both industry and uh, doctors across the, the nation as it relates to cancer, which is the, the area of specialty that I, um, you know, that I work in. So mine is kind of like a secondary intersection, maybe not quite as in-depth as, as Alan, but, you know, I do have, because we've worked extensively both in pharma and then after working with clinical data produced by pharmaceutical companies, we do have a really good understanding of, um, I guess, I guess uh, 
their influence. And as Alan mentioned, uh, you know, any type of marketing campaign has two phases to it. You have a pre-marketing campaign, is which is what you do leading up to the, the release of your phase three data. And then you have a post-launch campaign. Uh, and that's where, you know, you get the overt advertisement. But um, I think a lot of Canadians probably don't appreciate uh, the sophistication of these marketing campaigns uh, and also the degree to which it's integrated into the healthcare system now. And I've, I've seen a lot of changes in that capacity, um, especially over the last 10 years as the pharmaceutical companies have started to organize at a global level, um, their reach and their power and their resources is incredible. Uh, and so, they're able to go ahead. Well, just because that's what we're talking about tonight. So I'm just wondering if you can just elaborate and I'll introduce myself later because you're touching oh, on. <laughs> so I'm actually trying to encourage you to maybe go dive a little deeper. Right yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that, uh, well, you know, Sean, it's, it's kind of interesting because um, I can't remember when it was, but, you know, I, I would meet some very dynamic, very talented individuals, maybe when I'm working on a project and, you know, we're, we're talking to a pharmaceutical company about a trial that they did or some data that they had um, and, uh, you know, or, or somebody wants to hire us for an analysis and you meet these very talented people. Uh, you know, and then I'd call them six months later and, you know, they're like, oh, so-and-so doesn't work for Canada anymore. They've gone to global. And I was like, what's global, right? You know, and so this kind of happened systematically. And then I realized that every single pharmaceutical company has now taken the, the, the best and the brightest and they've organized them at a global level. Um, and these companies now basically make marketing plans that they then deploy worldwide. Uh, and so you've got this coordinated fashion and, you know, they work with, you know, NGOs uh, at a at a global level. They work with, uh, you know, tech companies. They, you know, they're 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 the leverage and the reach that they have um, and the resources that they have to deploy um, and leverage across countries is incredible. And it, and it, you know, I remember when I first started in the industry, it was always like, you know, you better be good to Health Canada and you better do what they say. And, you know, the the regulators were in charge. Right. Um, you know, and now basically you can have, you know, maybe I'll just step back for a second. So what they would do is they'd pit institutions against each other and they basically say, you know, if you want to buy this much from me, then we'll get you a better price, you know, or, you know, such and such a person is, you know, they're they've got more purchasing power, so we'll give them a better price. But because countries or because co corporations are organized at a global level, they're actually able to do the same thing now, but with countries. Um, you know, they can negotiate and pit countries against each other. Uh, you know, and, you know, I, I, I can't say that I have any documentation to support this, but it wouldn't be surprising to me that they would say something along the lines of, if you want access to a certain vaccine that's really in need right now, that's in high demand, then you better uh, buy this many, this much vaccine for this many years and or I'm going to give it to this country over here. Um, you know what I mean? Like, so I think the first thing that I would probably want to entertain discuss is is what it means to be dealing with uh, pharmaceutical companies which are living in this this space that's really above any country's laws 
and above any country's ability to regulate you know they're they're supernatural national they're just kind of moving around in this it's almost like the wild west of global corporations where they're beholden to nobody um, you know, they have to dip down and, uh, you know, if they want to do business in a given country, they want it, they need to dip down. But now what you see them doing is organizing at a global level to rewrite the regulations so it's not so difficult to operate uh, in a level. So, you know, it's like, who's the boss, <laughs> I think is the question, right? Like, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting time. And I think the sooner that we as citizens wake up to the fact that there are these dynamics and there's these movements at play to rework things so that uh, it's it's better for the companies and not necessarily for the people. I think that, um, you know, I think that's the, the biggest piece, like bit of awareness that we need to, to uh, I think that's what we need to wake up to and, and we need to become mm -hmm. aware of and we need to organize ourselves to deal with this new reality. So and just, Ellen, I could tell by your facial expressions, you're, you're wanting to jump in. I just, and, and so I'll let you jump in. I just, but I just wanted to, Deanna, when you're talking about that and the coordination globally, I'm thinking about how it kept com coming out at the NCI hearings um, that, that basically, so what Canada was doing, other countries were doing. And, and I was shocked that every province, because provinces have jurisdiction over health policy, you know, and, and the health practitioners, and yet in Canada, we had every province. I mean, it might as well have been dictated by the federal government. And yet, and then we also saw other countries. Like, was there any, I, I'm not aware of any, like a country might have chosen not to buy a bunch of vaccine, but it, it, it's not like somebody was trying a different policy, so so, uh, so to speak. So it's just interesting. Uh, Alan, I'll just let you chime in on what Deanna said. But um, <clears throat> like, as one thing that's puzzled me is just how, how did this appear so coordinated? And it might have just been group think somebody else is doing it, so I'll do it. But it'd be interesting to have your thoughts all on this. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's 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 that's that's chilling what what, what you've described, but also it's the uh, like when you've got a company as big as Pfizer, which was what's before the pandemic was the world's biggest ph pharmaceutical company, then made hundreds of billions of dollars marketing a vaccine and has ramped up its power 10 times and their ability to influence regulators, politicians, uh, consumers is just immense. There's, there's no, there's no power quite like that. And uh, mm -hmm. certainly when, when we look at uh, even in Canada, when it comes to uh, eliciting input from consumers about approval of new drugs, they, they, you know, they appropriately ask for consumer input. But the consumers that are giving their input are all paid by, well, not all paid, they're, they're largely funded or, or supported by uh, consumer groups that get money from pharma. So, I mean, and you ask yourself, who's representing the interests of the taxpayer here? If you're talking about value for money, you know, quality, benefits exceeding harms, you know, you've got the, the, drug, <laughs> the drug companies their drug company uh, industry associations. You've got many politicians who are in ridings that have uh, pharmaceutical industry uh, comp uh, companies where they're very much beholden to, to, to that kind of thing. And then you've got uh, consumer groups who uh, the federal government doesn't really fund consumer activism in terms of drug regulation, and they go to pharma. So all the 
patient groups, the patient advocacy groups, they almost universally speak with a voice uh, of more, faster, you know, the same talking points that the drug industry uses. And that's, and, and so there's very, there's very few countervailing forces to that. It, it's in, it's interesting because so just so that people watching understand so like if if a regulatory body well let's name it Health Canada is bringing in a new initiative um, they'll often say well we've well they will always say we've consulted with the public and you can get a look at you know who you know who's kind of had an input and a lot of these groups yeah I mean I sorry sorry to interrupt but I call bullshit on that they're not consulting with the public they're consulting with a well, private public that's been funded by the manufacturers to represent a certain viewpoint. If the average person was brought into a room and said, what would you think of the approval of this treatment? They would have many, many different questions. Like, why are you asking for $35,000 a year for a, a, a drug that does this much level of benefit over the other one? Like, yeah, and just common sense just, questions. I'm just emphasizing, Alan, because a lot of people watching might not understand what you're saying that there are consumer groups out there funded by big corporations to give the input, you know, in the regulatory process that the big corporations funding them want. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that's so you actually have to do your homework on, on funding groups. If I can tell you a, a story that, you know, it shocked me, I don't know if any of you knew Dr. Shiv Chopra, but uh, he's deceased now, but he wrote a book, Corrupt to the Core, on Health Canada, and he was a drug approval scientist for Health Canada for 30 years. He ran their veterinary approval arm for a while, but he was primarily involved in human drug approval, and uh, he became a whistleblower, and he forced the Senate to call him and I think four other Health Canada scientists to testify about the drug approval process in the Senate, and one of those was Dr. Margaret Hayden, and after she testified, she spoke to the CBC and what she said, I still find chilling because it, it speaks to regulatory capture. And yet at the, I found it chilling because I thought, oh, this is really smart how you get around. Um, so what she what she explained was, is, you know, after and so she's a drug approval scientist. So she's the person the taxpayer is paying to assess a drug approval application by a pharmaceutical company and decide whether, you know, it's a good idea. You know what? And if, if she decides it's a bad idea, she explained to the CBC, you know, after you're at Health Canada for a while as a drug approval scientist, you learn how they're going to get around your decision that we should not approve a drug. And how it, it works, as she explained, is, is so the Health Canada drug approval scientist will do their job and recommend that a drug not be approved. And then the senior management above them, which are never doctors or scientists, which is curious, they will appoint an outside panel of experts who, you, who will be connected to the pharmaceutical companies. And this outside panel of experts will review the application and determine that it should be approved. And you'll never know who voted on it, so there's no liability there. And then the senior management just takes the recommendation of this panel of outside experts, so they're not liable, and the drug gets approved. And as she explained, after you've been at Health Canada long enough, you recognize that this is the way they're going to get around your decisions. And I found that chilling, because here, you know, we have people actually within Health Canada trying to do their job, trying to act in the public interest, and yet they're being run around because what I would call bureaucratic 
um, capture. I wonder if any of you are, are familiar with that type of thing happening or have had any experiences that, that have troubled you. Um, I think I think just one thing that that is probably pretty important to realize and recognize is I think that, you know, early 2000s or so, or maybe it was even the late 90s, I can't remember exactly the time frame, but <clears throat> basically one of the things that pharmaceutical companies realized was that there was a real benefit to um, partnering with patient advocacy groups. Um, and funding them. And the, the phase of, the, of a marketing campaign, there's the pre-marketing phase. The goal is to raise awareness of, of the condition or disease that you ultimately want to treat in the mind of the consumer uh, and also to prepare the government uh, to think that this is a problem so that then, then when you release your phase three data, uh, you've got uh, patient advocates that are demanding and making a ruckus and putting pressure on the government in order to approve that drug. So, you know, in breast cancer, what breast cancer would be a perfect example, you know, they would sponsor, <clears throat> you know, uh, breast cancer advocacy groups, uh, then they would do runs for cancer and it would go in the media and, you know, there would be this and, you know, we need to treat breast cancer and I can't believe you're not going to treat a breast cancer patient. You know, and then all that money gets raised. And then, of course, there's a company behind it. And lo and behold, they've just launched a breast cancer drug. And, you know, they've got these these women who who think that they're looking out for their their own interests or their interests of their mother or their brother. or You know, they're doing the right thing. But it's a machine that then feeds um, the goals of the pharmaceutical company, because basically they want to uh, be able to, um, you know, they're preparing the government and, and using yeah. these agencies in order to push their drug and their agenda. Um, yeah, so I it's very orchestrated. I, yeah, I, I, I very much documented a very interesting case there on the drug Herceptin in, the, in terms yeah. of the, how, how the, when you looked at the drug, you would see sort of marginal level of benefit, some risk, and it's something that you need a very careful assessment of. But the front page Globe and Mail stories are about women taking this drug and suddenly being able to run five miles because they're suddenly uh, cured, and 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 that kind of thing, um, it, you know, it happens all the time. But one thing I wanted to just mention: um, you used a, a bit of a jargon there, Sean. Uh, regulatory capture. People should have an understanding of what that means. Is that you know, so when you've got Health Canada, whose job it is to approve drugs and now natural health products. Um, you would think that they're Let, let's get into the COVID nineteen vaccine because I also want to ask you guys if you if what you're describing with you know pharmaceutical companies creating a demand we kind of saw that even with our governments with COVID nineteen so I but so finish what you're talking about and then I think you know let's see if we can tie this into COVID yeah I just, I just want to emphasize one point and that is uh, the people who work at Health Canada whose job it is to uh, review drug studies and to give approval um, they would think that their 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 target audience the people that are interested in their information are the client are the clients happy to be the taxpayers the citizens who ingest the drugs they want to make sure that those drugs are safe and effective the problem is that the companies themselves pay the regulator to review their drugs. And so something like a half to two thirds of the money that Health Canada gets to review and approve drugs comes from the companies themselves. So if you're working at Health Canada, you say, well, who is my client here? 
Well, the client is obviously the company that's paying the agency to review those drugs. It's completely ass backwards. I mean, so this is not unusual. It happens in Canada, it happens in the US, but anybody standing back from this would saying, you know, like if we wanted to say regulate, I don't know, the oil companies, would we allow the oil companies to pay the independent body to assess the value of, of their products before they get approved or, or get used? Of course we wouldn't. We would say that's that's a corruption. That's a that's that's corrupting the process. And I think that uh, the, the 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 regulator has been captured to the extent that we have instituted uh, financial payment from the companies to the regulator to approve drugs. And what are they going to do? They're going to approve drugs. <laughs> and yeah. oftentimes Just against that. the best interests of of the consumer in terms of safety and harm. I, so, I definitely, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sean. Oh, no, no, you can, you can jump in. And then I just I just got thinking about, um, you know, the drug approval process for the vaccine. And uh, so I'll jump into that after you. So maybe just a, maybe just a couple things, because <clears throat> I know you wanted to tie it back to the, the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, so, you know, the, the way that they position those fees is, is that, you know, bureaucrats are notoriously slow to review stuff. And so, you know, it was all about expediting the process and they would follow the same process, but you would give them more funding so they could hire more people so they could do a better job. Um, but I agree with, I got, I agree with Alan that that can create, that create competing interests. So if your operations are dependent on money coming from pharmaceutical companies, and there's only so much you can say, um, you, you, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one thing. And I mean, they all still have to submit if they want to get to market. So I definitely think that that's competing interest, but I think that, um, there's two other really important and probably more, uh, stronger competing interests that I think are at play with the COVID-19 vaccines. And one is that in addition to the fact that the FDA, um, receives <laughs> funding in a similar fashion to, um, to Health Canada to approve the vaccines, the NIAID and the NIH actually can um, has royalties uh, for the spike protein for um, the 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 Moderna vaccine. So you know, on one hand, they're making the policy, or they're part of the body that creates the policy to recommend these drugs. Fauci can get up on television and say, you know, I think that we should use these COVID-19 shots. And at the same time, he can receive up to $150,000 a year, right, annually in royalties, like paid directly uh, for people using that vaccine, right? So he, he gets cut in the action and so do all of his friends. And so I think that that's probably uh, um, like one thing that we really have to consider, think about and you can say, oh, that's the crazy states. But when you think about the COVID-19 shots, everybody was taking their cues from the CDC and, and the U.S. The U.S. was the, the U.S. and the World Health Organization were the people who actually created the roadmap out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So these people are incredibly powerful, especially in the area of infectious disease. And they're also getting paid. And so that's an incredible conflict of interest. But I'm going to even take it further because there's more that we need to consider here, is that when we were digging into the regulatory changes, uh, the, you know, the agile regulations, 
if you go back as early as 2015 and you look at the, the federal government, what they did is they launched a health and biosciences economic strategy table, which was an industry-led working group that was to uh, advise the federal government on how to grow the health and biosciences sector. And they wrote a report that was published, I believe, towards the end of 2018. And in that report, the number one recommendation that they had among many was that we needed to deregulate our, our um, you know, our, our, we had to basically lower our regulatory standards for novel therapies. And, and the wording, like this is incredible. So the wording is such that we are going to, and of course they use, you know, facilitate innovation and we're going to modernize our regulations. But what they're really doing is they're making it easier for these global companies to basically promote their novel tech in Canadians. And, you know, the standard has always been proving safety and proven efficacy, ensuring that the benefits outweigh the risks. That's always been our standard test. And now, Sean, as you know, the standard for um, the COVID-19 shots was you just have to provide enough supporting evidence to support the conclusion. Okay, enough evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits outweigh the risks. Gone is proven safety. Gone is proving efficacy. Yeah. so it's it's like a back door and it's and it and the other thing too that's really interesting is it's a government like they they are facilitating this creation of the back door they're 100% behind it and when you look at the documentation that surrounds it there's horrific things and i think it's horrific like we need to do this in order to attract international investment in canada we need to do this in order to attract you know big pharma to come and invest in Canada. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, after they deregulated and approved the COVID-19 shots and Canada was among the highest adopters for the COVID-19 shots in terms of, you know, getting their population to take these things, lo and behold, Moderna came in and uh, put a plant in Ontario. And, you know, and our, our lovely premier gave him $4 million of taxpayer money to say welcome. So, I mean... That talk about conflicts of interest. <laughs> like, it, it's it's interesting. So and first of all, so people watching. Um, so Deanna testified twice at the National Citizens Inquiry on you know regulatory issues connected with COVID nineteen vaccine, including Deanna, if I recall correctly, you know on their quality control issues, which you know just wouldn't it couldn't happen in in normal times. So no. and and. And Alan also. Now, so when we're talking about, um, you know, you kind of alluded to this um, test for uh, COVID-19 vaccine. So I, I testified at the National Citizens Inquiry, I think it was day two in Montreal, on that test. So if the viewers didn't watch that, so basically what Deanna was talking about is our regular test for drug approval requires there to be proof of safety I mean, the wording's, wording's pretty lax if we're honest about it. Um, it's better but than you, nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I understand. But it's funny when I was doing the analysis, you know, you look at, at C.08 and, and onwards, the new drug approval process. When I was doing the analysis um, for that discussion paper on, you know, how they even relaxed it further brought in this new test for the COVID-19 vaccines, I really was struck because um, I was just, you know, in my mind, they have to prove safety. 
they have to prove efficacy. And then once you understand the safety efficacy profile, then you decide, is this a good idea, even though that requirement isn't in the regs. But, you know, there's no, even in the regular regs, it's, there's not a clear cut. You have to prove, you know, safety and you have to prove efficacy. It's just the way it's worded. We're assuming that those are requirements. And I'm still assuming that our regular drug approval requirement, you know, requires proof of safety and requires proof of efficacy because they have to provide this evidence. It just, it doesn't actually require the minister to meet a certain finding of safety or meet a certain standard of efficacy. So all I'm saying is, is even the way it's written is lax. But just so the, the viewers watching this are, are aware, so in the normal course of events, prove safety, prove efficacy, you know, that it, it works for what you want it approved for. And then once you understand the efficacy and safety profile, is this a good idea, is, is how I've understood yeah. the state. Yeah. But for a COVID-19 vaccine, the, the minister came with an, an interim order, literally like a month before I think Pfizer and Moderna filed. And it's like, how could you get your drug approval application ready to meet that test if you didn't know that test was coming down the pipe beforehand? Because that's a pretty short period of time for which to structure a new drug approval application of that bulk. Right. Like, have you thought of it that way? Like, it's just the timing, the timing surprised me. Like it was like for the first two applications and I think it was Pfizer and for sure it was Pfizer. Um, but I think the other one was Moderna, the first two. I mean, it's, it's within uh, around 30 days after this interim order comes into play. And I'm thinking, okay, so they know the test before it's published. And then the test itself is so shocking. Like safety's not even mentioned the word safety's not in the test and the word efficacy is not in the test like so just ignore health canada messaging and it's a mandatory test so the health canada's got to grant a license if basically you can argue the benefits outweigh the risk and it's like oh wait stop the bus how can we even be talking about whether the benefits outweigh the risks if we haven't established the safety profile and we haven't established the efficacy profile and isn't that an example of kind of what we're talking about regulatory capture. Like how do we arrive at that type of test where the pharmaceutical companies can say, well, we've met the test, but I mean, to me, that's that's kind of a sign of regulatory capture. I don't know what your guys' thoughts on are, but I, I've never seen anything like we what we've seen with this COVID-19 vaccine. Well, you know, Alan, go ahead. No, no, I'll just tell you what blew me away is that, you know, the vaccine was approved sometime in, approved in early 2021, and people were rushing to get vaccinated, but there was no published clinical trial to show the, the safety and harm related to the vaccine. So in my world, nobody, uh, no serious epidemiologist or science would, scientists would consider uh, uh, a, a treatment valuable until they've seen the published clinical trial. The clinical trial was published, came out in, I think it's September. There might've been a preprint, but you know, it's September. So, so the drug had been, the, the vaccine had been administered for about six months before the actual data was published. And if we can trust the data, it showed that people who were vaccinated had a higher risk of adverse events than people who weren't vaccinated. 
high rates of heart attacks, strokes, blood clots. I mean, they they weren't that much higher, but they were. It's the kind of thing that you would say, hang on a second. Well, and let's just say, let's say that the data was, let's say the data was reversed. What's that? Let's say the data was reversed, because what you're saying is, is actually the placebo group was doing better, had better yeah. outcomes than the drug group. But even if they were reversed, you you wouldn't approve that drug. Like, not yet. It's, no, not, no. You know? Well, so I so think, it, it kind of blew yeah. me away that, that the friends of mine who are scientists and very careful epidemiologists were all getting vaccinated, but they hadn't actually read the clinical trials. And when the clinical trials came out, and I saw that there were there were more deaths in the vaccinated group than the placebo group. I just sort of said, "Wait a second, th th this is this is completely backwards. Why would you approve something that's going to get used by millions of people when you're actually, according to the clinical trials, if we can rely on them, you're increasing the death rate?" Uh, it's, <laughs> it was shocking to me, to be honest with well, you. I think I think the thing that I, I was going to ask you about, Sean, I didn't even get a chance to ask you before I did my NCI presentation, but I thought it was actually pretty curious. Um, well, there, there's two two pieces that, that kind of are interconnected. So, um, you know, one of the things about vaccines that is so particularly interesting for pharmaceutical companies is that you can you go from treating sick people. Right. To treating healthy people. So if you're thinking it from an economic standpoint, you you go from a limited market, which are people who are sick with COVID-19, just say, like for that would be a treatment market. And then if you can if you can convince them that your vaccine works, then you can you can treat all the healthy people. So you've got like, you know, a, a, an expanded market, like a grossly expanded market. And then if you if you can convince them to get multiple shots because you need boosters you've got yourself like a membership model, right? Like you've just got everybody having to pay all the time. And if you've got a single payer system like we do in Health Canada, I mean, in Canada, excuse me, a single payer system, you've got the public funds, like you've got a public yeah. coffer that just is going to just cough it up over and over again. So, I mean, the prize of being able to convince Canadians and, you know, to work with regulators to get this mRNA technology approved so that they could do this subscription model of vaccination. I mean, it's it's the most it is it's the penultimate prize from a pharmaceutical point of view. Yeah. And so I'm not and, surprised that the Pfizer, you know, went for it. And, you know, Moderna, which I believe is like a military <laughs> type of operation, you know, they're probably into it, too. Right. Because they're all about that. Um, but anyways, I'm just, I think, I think that we have to really realize this, but on that note, like, so the moment that you move from treatment, that's an individual benefit risk ratio, but the moment you move into vaccines, then you're looking at a collective benefit risk ratio. And, you know, traditionally it's always been the benefits that weigh the risks, uh, for a, an individual, for a patient, because it's all about, you know, informed choice and, and, uh, you know, and bodily autonomy, but I think the way that they worded this test allows them to now make decisions at a collective level, because in that test, they don't actually mention that the benefits outweigh the risks for an individual. They just say the benefits outweigh the risks. And if you listen to the politicians and the, and the, the health officials, they would basically say, yes, we know that people are being injured, but the benefits outweigh the risks. So it can't be for that individual. 
So it must be that they're actually making treatment decisions or, 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 you know, public health is making collective decisions where the benefits socially outweigh the risk socially, which is an incredible shift. I don't know if that's actually happening, but I'm I'm concerned. This is actually my my testimony at the NCI was all about what did the data and what did the regulators say about the vaccine's ability to prevent transmission? I mean, that's what the entire vaccine passport system was based on, the vaccine's ability to prevent transmission. The vaccine was not studied for that, was not approved for that, was not regulated for that. So we can say top top of the mind that the drug companies were not even allowed to, to um, they weren't allowed to market their drug, their vaccine as something that prevents transmission. Though the public health people, the, our, our provincial health uh, officer here in British Columbia and the prime minister and others were and, you know, the president of the United States was saying this this vaccine is going to protect grandma. It's going to pr- no, no. There was the vaccine wasn't studied to do that. It wasn't approved to do that. The companies, even if they made that claim, would be violating the law. They can't advertise the vaccine as preventing transmission. And so, so I mean, the 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 whole idea that um, uh, that there's some kind of social benefit for the vaccine. It's not based in science. Well, what I think is actually kind of interesting, and Sean, I don't know what you want to say, but I mean, the you know the the regulatory process has limitations as to what uh, you know companies can claim about their drugs. Yes. Um, but what I found is really interesting is you know well, well I'm going to just speak to something. So many, many, many moons ago, um, you know, it, vaccines and cancer haven't been too you know, I mean, I think they've been trying to make vaccines for cancer for a long time. Um, But, you know, we talked about the way that pharmaceutical companies engaged advocacy groups to then put pressure. So the advocacy groups would basically put pressure on the media, which would then put pressure on the politicians that would then, you know, uh, you know, sway their hand to influence Health Canada to get a drug approved, because, you know, it's embarrassing if you're making if you're allowing you know, breast cancer moms to die, or the mother of three is going to die if you don't approve this drug, right? I mean, they, they personalize it, and they get it in the public eye. But, um, you know, just when it comes to these COVID-19 shots, you know, they were doing, you know, not only the patient advocacy piece, but they were also, um, you know, pushing the the regulator like they were I don't know I guess I guess they were like they had the media involved you know they had their their paid for doctors and the spotlight you know they they were they the disease alarmism that they used for the COVID-19 shots was incredible like just the way that they presented the data or didn't present the data um and, you know, all of that was designed to make people terrified so that then they would line up to get these shots. And I believe that the lockdowns were part of that as well. But, Alan, you're talking about transmission. You know, this whole idea of using a faulty PCR test so that you're getting all sorts of false positives, which then makes you think, oh, my gosh, healthy people can are sick. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually no normal people would just say that's a false positive. Right? Like yeah, you yeah. Have, you're using a non-clinically validated test, right? It's not clinically validated. So we don't even know if this works and we don't even know if it's testing active disease or not. Like exactly. we didn't do the proper studies. Disease. Yeah. 
so then so then you're in normal circumstances you're getting false positives but they're like oh man look at that we'll just make everybody extra afraid because like healthy people can give you covid and you know that just that's all part of the pre-marketing campaign to make people terrified because that's how you sell vaccines is, is through fear and that's right? what you wrote a book on alan is is well, like i just share a personal story because it's actually this is how i became suspicious about what was going on is it like we were we were literally only about 10 days into the mainstream media just you know fear 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 you know we're all gonna die like it wasn't two weeks and then the mainstream media starts mentioning the word vaccine in connection to coronavirus and i mean i'm in the drug approval world and it's like well, wait a second they've been trying the pharmaceutical companies have been trying to create a vaccine for coronavirus for a long long time because yeah. then we could get every Western democracy paying for two flu vaccines a year, not just one. And it's like, so any reporter worth their salt in 15 minutes could figure out that's not realistic, that we're going to come out with a rushed vaccine for coronavirus. And anyone in the drug approval world, I mean, would be having the same alarm. I'm, so for me, that was the okay, this, this isn't what it appears. This isn't real anymore. Like, full stop, this isn't real. And I actually stopped watching the television. But how, you know, how is it the media? Like, so we, we haven't had consumer time for consumer groups to start demanding a vaccine. The media started talking about vaccine as the way out. And then, oh, yeah. then yeah. we, so how does that happen? Yeah, they, they were doing surveys of people uh, in, uh, in sort of mid-2020. If a vaccine comes, would you take it? And I mean, the, the Globe is reporting these surveys. I'm like, that's the most absurd survey I've ever heard of. It's just sort of like saying, we have a new drug. Will you take it? It's like, well, it depends. What's the disease? What's the nature of the illness? How much risk reduction is involved in the disease? And is there any harm related? And how much does it cost? So there's five questions that you need to answer before someone asks you, you take a drug or not. But they were surveying people. Oh, yeah, 60% of Canadians will take a vaccine when it comes, when it gets approved. Like, who's driving this? <laughs> well, yeah. and, and then our political parties, like, I mean, I, I feel sorry for the politicians and, and I'm, I'm no lover of politicians, but it's just the media campaign was so relentless. Like, we weren't the opposition parties actually critical of the government of not getting the vaccine out fast enough? Like, yes. nobody knows. And, and if you stuck your head up and, as an, a politician and said, I think we need to be cautious here, didn't you get kicked out of the party? Like the few oh, yeah. that or if you said, if you said, do we need a vaccine for the common cold? Because the coronavirus is a is related to the common. Do we need a vaccine for that? Yeah. 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 Well, I think I think one of the things that we need to remember too, and this is just a this was just an interesting conversation I had with somebody who is the ex VP for one of the large media outlets in in Canada. You know, in the early stages of the pandemic, it was just it was a job interview. You know, he's looking to to see if we needed communication specialists. But one of the things he told us is that the 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 news, like the media, the mainstream media has has undergone an incredible transformation that I don't think again many Canadians really appreciate because the 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 economic engine, the bread and butter of the news, like. It, so cable TV used to be like the TV channel used to be how you paid for the news. And the news was the public service that these, you know, that these broadcasters or these TV channels did. And so, 
you know, that's how you that's how you paid for these investigative journalists that went and sought the truth. And that's how you you know, I think there's probably been always some sort of level of bias, potentially, you know, based on political view, depending on what news outlet it is and everything. But what he's described to me now is that they're basically broke. You know, the the federal government, you know, pay, is paying is keeping them on life support. Well, um, because the and internet. Then, <laughs> and yeah, well, this is it with the advent of the internet, and everybody can find their own information. And then the streaming, you know, everybody went from you know paying for cable to streaming shows and there went their profit like i mean they don't have a profit and then so what it did is it made them reliant now on people who advertise for them so it becomes an economic yeah. business and if you want to stay in business guess what disease alarmism is your friend this is something that i've actually studied very deeply Diana, is that is the um is is the uh the the, the way that certainly in the u.s the big mainstream media outlets, the New York Times, the, the the major magazines, very heavily dependent, and certainly cable television, very heavily dependent on uh, on drug advertising. People tell me that you watch American TV, you're going to consume five or six drug ads per hour. I don't watch American TV, but I, I sometimes look at the ads online, and I, and so you get an understanding that. Uh, if if there's that much money going into these outlets to produce news, is the news ever going to be credible? Uh, because they're never going to be able to criticize Pfizer or Novartis or or Eli Lilly and their products. Of course not. You don't mm -hmm. you don't bite the hand that feeds you. I mean, it's not conspiracy. It's business. No, I mean, yeah, no, no. And if you have no other you have no other means of income. Like, I mean, right. it used to be that cable television was your income. And then this was yeah. your just your extra. Like, I mean, that gave you the latitude to to be honest, because there's no competing things. But I mean, how can you possibly go against your your main revenue stream? Your, you, you your the I higher mean, ups it, will never allow for it. You can pretend. To, yeah. Didn't the government of Canada help out financially during the COVID thing with not just the CBC, but the oh, other? Yeah. yeah, I think there was $600 million, generally speaking, that and, went and, out and, to and, them. And, 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 and then 2.8 for CBC during the COVID pandemic or some, you know, so some sort of crazy amount yeah. of money. But so you've got your feds, right, which yeah. are, are basically doing it. And then you've got your, then they're depending on you know, pharmaceutical advertising, but it gets even better because this guy, this guy told me another thing that I had no idea. I was just shocked is they're so desperate for money. What they'll do is they'll just accept. Uh, so then what, what uh, pharmaceutical companies do is they, they buy time. So, yeah, you know, it's, you, it's you, called an advertorial. Yeah. So we, we, we know all about this. It's like, yeah, it, well, it they looks buy like news. It kind of feels like news. It's not news. It's, it's, it's marketing. It's Right. And you can bring in your expert and the expert can say the points that you want him yeah. to say. And and the and the consumer, the person who's watching this goes, that was a lovely emergency doc. I can't believe his his COVID word is overflowing with patients, you know, and so all that they really had to do is find somebody who's got an emergency word yeah. that's chronically overflowing because it's been underfunded or it's, you know, there's some staffing issue. And then they just, they're like, hey, are you, you know, come on in, you know, we'll pay you a, a stipend, like a regular amount of money. And I'll, and you can speak to the fact that your COVID, your ward is overflowing with patients. Do you know what I mean? Like, so they mm -hmm. can manufacture by selectively interviewing and selectively allowing the public to see certain sides of the story. 
they can create a story and a perception in the mind of the public and and they did it to a t you know so oh, yeah. i want to know i want to know how much they made during the COVID 19 pandemic because it's not just pharma that went away like bandits or you no, know no no and then i have personal examples of various media outlets that i used to write for and i propose stories and they're they're not interested i mean these are these are editors who trust me they know my work i've written for them for many years and they say oh no it's too critical it's the mainstream you know, for example there is an issue of excess deaths in the last two years and looking at the numbers in british columbia there you know there's been a sort of steady rise in 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 when excess deaths so above normal norms and then there's a spike after 2021 that they're in excess of 7,000 deaths in British Columbia. So I wrote a story and pitched it to this editor of a local magazine. And, and she was like, no, we, 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 we can't do that. And, and I don't really know why, but I suspect because they're also on the payroll of the, uh, of, of, of the, of the, um, the, I don't know, whatever you call the, 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 the media milking cow that some of these media outlets are getting. So. Yeah. I, I think they, Alan, on that note, I think the other thing that we probably need to acknowledge is that CBC and a number of the other news outlets, you know, bought on to, you know, join the Trusted News Initiative. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, and that, and that was particularly they binded together to tell the truth about COVID, which was the truth, i.e., the public health side of the story, not yeah, was, the truth in the sense narrative. of we're going to to find the truth and we're going to weigh the truth ourselves. It's we're you know, we're going to appeal to authority and allow them to do our work for us and then so you know so then i guess what you have is you have public health is the mouthpiece of pharma and now the media is the mouthpiece of public health yeah yeah <laughs> so and, and you, you know, know pharma's what, pharma's voice is getting awfully loud and you know unchallenged right what they say in the, the the first casualty of war is the truth and uh and i think we saw this um when you've got sort of the so many actors aligned against you know critically examining and we used to trust our media to you know the cbc or the global mail to take an issue and really you know deconstruct it and sort of what's in the best interest of canadians but when covid came along it was like we had these commentators you know um saying things that were patently absurd and no and 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 and, and getting away with it <laughs> it's like, it's like what's going on here so the media, we, you know, we seem to, you know, we seem to be understanding that there's, there's a real financial incentive, but how do we explain the governments, both provincial and federal, like following the same suit? Because, I mean, it, it was the same, basically the same message. Like one thing that frustrated me is like, so you remember the CCCA did what I thought was a pretty good piece explaining relative risk and absolute risk. and what frustrated me being, I mean, in my legal career, I mean, I, I've defended companies that Health Canada goes after. And like pre-COVID, I mean, you'd get into trouble if you were advertising relative risk because it was understood that that was misleading. And if a company would, would dare to, to put out their relative risk, the regulatory body would go after you. And yet here we have the government and regulatory body pushing relative risk statistics to the public right. when in any other time period other than covid they would be slapping the wrist of any company that would 
would dare to do that. And yet yeah. here we have them doing it. Like, did you did that kind of like stick out to you also? Well, absolutely. And 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 journalists, good journalists, used to call them on it. In fact, I wrote you know hundreds of articles in my career about uh, the promotion of drugs for whatever osteoporosis, high cholesterol, depression, where the relative risk reductions are so misleading and so meaningless that um, they should be outlawed. And yet the vaccine comes out 90% effective. It's like, okay, well, 90% of what? It's the first question you asked, 90% of what? Mm-hmm. The, the, rel- the absolute risk reduction was a minuscule part of a percentage point. Yeah, 0.8%. So the number of people who would have benefited from- Does one of you want to explain for people listening what the difference is between relative and absolute risk? Let, so let people me give you the best example. It's kind of turned me into a bit of an activist. They used to, uh, in the in the mid-90s, a company called Merck came out with a new drug for osteoporosis to reduce the risk of hip fractures, right? And they tested this drug. It was called Alendronate, also trade name Fosamax. It's been there are many others since then. And they promoted it as a reducing the rate of hip fractures by 50%. And I was like, wow, that's that's a pretty impressive. But when you actually looked at the study, you say, well, how many people were studied? They took the highest risk women they could find, women who had had a previous osteoporosis-related fracture, and women who had low bone density defined by however they defined it at the day. They tested these women, 4,400 women in a trial that lasted three years. Okay, some of them got the drug, some of them got the placebo. Okay, followed them for three years. How many had a hip fracture on the placebo? Which is, means they didn't get any active treatment. They were a high-risk person. They had, they had established osteoporosis. How many had a hip fracture? Out of 100. Okay, I'll tell you, it wasn't 20%. It was 2%. Two out of 100 women broke a hip in that three-year trial. And these are already women that are at high risk to yes, have yeah. a fracture. Okay. And they're on the placebo. How many on the drug broke a hip? One out of 100. So when you go from two out of 100 down to one out of 100, that's a 50% drop. Right. That's so it's marked as a right 50% reduction, but the actual absolute difference, you have to subtract the two, two subtract one is one. So 100%. one out of a hundred, one out of a hundred women benefited from that osteoporosis drug, but it was marketed as a 50% reduction. Mm-hmm. And then I used to use this when I did courses in journalism school, trying to explain the differences between relative and absolute risk is that the point is, is that, 99 out of 100 women who take that drug will not have any benefit, but they will be exposed to all of the harms related to that drug. I agree with you. And yes. you could say the same thing about any other drug for cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, a depression, um, COVID. You know, you could say the same thing. You might have some uh, minuscule risk reduction, but then everyone's going to be exposed to the adverse effects. And we didn't know them with this drug until the drug had been on the market for about eight years and then they said oh we we don't recommend the drug be well, one of the things that frustrated me about the the pfizer COVID trial is you know how like you already talked about well i mean the data didn't the placebo group did better anyway but just how short it was and then and then basically they took away the control group so going forward 
like how what was it after two months that they yes like, yeah, they yeah so the, the, the biggest months. problem with that Sean, was wasn't that whole thing became meaningless the, the, the biggest problem was they studied in healthy people they didn't study it in the elderly and the immunocompromised the people that you actually want to, in your clinical trial because that's where the, the major like basically if your risk is high your potential for benefit is high but if mm -hmm. you're an average person and your risk you know i'm a healthy 60 year old guy risk is fairly low my so, potential benefits going to be low so they stacked the study with young people healthy I'm, people i'm wondering if like this might what we might want to do because a lot of people watching will never get the opportunity to have people like you explain some of the problems in our drug approval and what what you're starting to do, to do is explain some of the problems in the trial design and i'm just wondering if if you know maybe it might be helpful for people to understand like even you know non-covid times when the government says safe and effective just kind of how weak that can be and let me just give you an example of of you know you know when i again started to learn how fragile our drug approval system is like you alan and dan have already brought up like the conflict of interest that's just totally there and i've seen health canada internal documents and prosecutions referring to the pharmaceutical companies as clients. Like the, there's a clear conflict of interest, but even the way the whole system's set up, like, I mean, books are written on how you can game clinical trials and you're, you're citing how in the COVID trial, I mean, we knew early on that the, the problem was elderly people, especially with comorbidities, will study those because, you know, see if the vaccine works there. But one thing that really got my attention is this, I'm, I'm in the middle of, a, of a, tr a long trial involving Health Canada and Health Canada hired this, you know, outside expert to swear an expert affidavit who in this, this, this person ran a company that would do clinical trials on psychiatric drugs. And I'm sitting, I, I was cross-examining this fellow for days. And at some, at one point he actually started complaining to me about how hard it is to get a new antidepressant through the drug approval process. And he and he's saying, you know, so we got to come up with two, two double blind clinical trials, you know, showing that magical statistical separation between the drug and the placebo that we pretend means. And I mean, it truly is just an assumption. So we pretend it means the drug works. And he's saying, well, it's getting so hard to do that that his company just out of the gate on a new antidepressant starts eight clinical trials to get the two that <laughs> was a statistical separation. Like, so here I've got an expert who's actually frustrated and he's explaining to me under oath, yeah, I got to give Health Canada two, but I'll start eight out of the gate. And this is what they do for, he runs a company that gets you know, does the clinical trials for psychiatric drugs, and he's complaining on the new antidepressants, it's just so hard to get the two. I just start out of the gate with the eight, because, you know, there's time pressures here. We got patent clock, yeah. clock ticking, right? Yeah. So he starts eight right out of the gate. So you know that's in the pricing model and everything when he quotes that they're gonna run eight, because he's they've learned they have to run on average eight to get two that show this statistical separation. Yeah, and then they can, then they can bury all the negative trials. I mean, we saw this, sorry to interrupt, Sean, but we saw this with a very critical issue of using antidepressants in children. 
which is to say somebody under 18, should we be using antidepressants in this population? And, you know, there is a number of, of, of quite, quite famous trials where they had, they, the, the company, and I won't mention the name of the company, but they, they did a number of trials. They buried all the negative ones, which to say they never saw publication and they only took the positive ones and they said the drug works. But, but when critical reviewers like people in the Cochrane collaboration said, no, no, let's look at all the trials. And they put all the trials together, go, well, the drug's negative because it increased the risk of suicide. And so we have regulators that allow this. They allow companies to do these studies, bury the negative ones, bring the positive ones, because that's what is going to allow the drug to be approved, and away they go to town. Most people, yeah. this, this blows me away when I have neighbors, you know, in my neighborhood who I know their kids are on antidepressants for whatever reason, and I, I won't get into that, but it's like, do you know that? Do you think your doctor knows that the majority of the trials in that population were negative in terms of suicide and suicidal ideation? No, they would be shocked. Uh, so I have to be. <laughs> well, I think I yeah. I think what you're saying is is once they once they get an idea rolling, right? Like the COVID nineteen shots prevent infection and transmission. You know, it doesn't matter whether they find a trade a trial later that disproves it. Once the machine's rolling, like once the Titanic is heading that way, right? It's very 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 difficult to change the course. So it's all about you know, making sure that it comes out at the right direction and that the moment that's got the thrusters on so that the momentum just keeps on going because yeah. everybody knows that it's very, very hard to stop this train once it's out of the gate. You know, I think I'm jumping metaphors from boats to trains there, but I think, yeah. I think we get the idea, right? Like it, they all know, right? And then, and what they do is they basically say, you've got to get, you know, you, you basically get your foot in the door, right? So choose one group you know, and then what you do is then you expand your patient population, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so and, we're not going to go after the kids right away. So Deanna, can, you talk, can you talk about that? Because with the COVID-19, so using the Pfizer trial, for example, can you talk about the population that they studied and then that all of a sudden they're approving pregnant women and things like that? Because this is, oh. I think this is important for people to understand. <laughs> well, I think Alan already touched on it, right? So, you know, mRNA, mRNA technology is, well, it, it's, it's mRNA, um, you know, which are little info packets, and then they, they're in these little, little nanoparticles, so these little fat sacks. Um, but these are, these are the types of vehicles that they use to disseminate chemotherapy through a person's body. So if you want to make sure that you get to all parts of your body, you know, through membranes that are protective and everything to make sure that that, uh, that chemotherapy is delivered to the cancer cells, this is the type of technology that would you, they would use. And so they're using this, they're putting mRNA, which basically teaches your body to produce a spike protein which is the, the part of the, the virus that causes the disease. And so it, in, you know, they, they inject these lipid nanoparticles into your body, they go into your cells, uh, you know, your cells produce this spike protein, which sits on the outside of your cells and then tags them as foreign and allows your immune system to then come and attack those cells. So it's a, it's, it's, it, I mean, just, I mean, one of the things that we do when we're doing a, a clinical evaluation is you begin with the mechanism of action. How does this actually work? 
So the whole idea that you're going to fight disease by causing the very, you know, by injecting the part or causing the part of the virus that manifests the disease to be in your, in your body is like a crazy, it's, it's, it's nonsensical, right? Like we're going to teach your body to do the disease that the virus can't do to make the no, disease no. the body can't do. Right. Can I step in? Cause I wonder if any of you have heard this cause it's just um, the commissioners that had me recall Dr. Peter McCullough. It was either last week or the week before. And I had, I had asked him the question. It's like, well, why did they, why did they have the MNRA create the spike protein? Why not another part of the virus? And um, my understanding from his answer is, is that based on, on previous research, um, you know, they were thinking they were going to get the best immune response from that. Like the whole thing's still crazy. But have you heard anything like that? Like I oh. hadn't ever heard any indication that, like that I before. Mean, yeah, the spike protein is the part that's extending out. So I mean, for sure that it, it's a protein that's exposed and you can make an anti like an antigen that's exposed for an antibody. But I personally always look at things from an economic point of view. And that's the part that mutates. Right. So if you want to get, you know, mm. if you want to demand the, de the need for another iteration of the of the vaccine. And the reason why I'm sorry, I kind of got a little distracted. But the reason why the mRNA technology is so interesting is because, you know, with respiratory vaccine, with respiratory viruses, they mutate. And so you need to be able to pivot and adapt your um, your technology to be able to uh, adapt it to the next variant like they do with the flu vaccine. So if you're going to have a viable economical model, you actually have to have the ability to pivot. So the fact that like with mRNA, they, it's basically like it's like a little nano printer, right? You just print out your mRNA sequence, you redesign it, and then boom, you've got your next agent, right? So it's, it's super adaptable, it's super flexible, and it's super economic. So they want it because it'll yeah. allow them to then capitalize on this respiratory vaccine, like the, se the seasonality of it. And every time that they say, oh, there's a new variant, i.e. the spike protein is mutated to the point that, you know, I think we need a new, that this is no longer effective, then we need to produce a new vaccine. So this is, this is that, you know, ongoing need it's it's creating this ongoing need for the vaccine now if you talk to steve pellick part of the ccca you know he's gone on extensively about the fact that it's only one of many proteins um that the virus has and your immune system once it sees the virus the first time develops like 52 antibodies to it so it doesn't need to just have the spike protein antibody your your natural acquired immunity you know you get a a, a host of antibodies that can then identify and fight the virus the next time you see it. So it's really a marketing scam. It's like a marketing scam to. So, so just so people understand. So what when you're referring to Stephen, Dr. Stephen Pellick, is what he's saying is, is when you've had natural immunity, so you've been exposed to the COVID-19 and you gain natural immunity, your immune system has about 50 markers at least to recognize the virus. Yeah, I can't remember how many, but there were many, many multiple, you know. Yeah. So. But from a business model, if you can get somebody the COVID-19 vaccine first and it kind of actually hampers the immune system, so you, you'll get temporary immunity yeah. for that spike protein. But from a business model, then the, it's going to keep mutating and you have to keep getting a different. 
Well, it's actually even different. It's it's a little bit more subtle than that. So, Sean, so what you want to do is you it's all about what you focus on and what you don't focus on. Right. So if I want to sell you a vaccine, I'm going to basically say, you know, the um, the vaccine that that uh, creates an antibody to the spike protein, then the spike protein, of course, is the most important antigen right? Or part of the vaccine. And it's the only one that counts, right? So I'm not going to talk like nobody like public health doesn't talk about all the other antibodies that you make with natural acquired. Nobody's going to talk about it. All that they talk about it is, um, you know, the receptor binding domain and neutralizing that. uh, And because that's what the vaccine does. So they they control the narrative and you get you get they get you to focus on just that one part, that one antigen, that one part that the vaccine plays, and that's the part that they're going to be able to sell you over and over and over again. Now, if, it's what if they you, do with the flu vaccine. It's, just, it's the same yeah. sort of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the flu vaccine, but yeah. like yeah. even so then if we just kind of step back just a little bit and we go back to the, the types of changes that they'd like to push for the food and drug regulation right now. Oh, well, yeah. No, of, let's do that because I think it's all tied together. Yeah, I'm going to I'm just going to step back. So one of the amendments that they proposed in the last, you know, round of changes was that they basically wanted to move from approving biologics as products to biologics as platforms. Right. So, I mean, it's it's just crazy how greedy they are. Right. So, I mean, in cancer therapy, you have a biologic, which is like an antibody for, you know, cancer treatment or something like that. Monoclonal antibody. Um, that that fights cancer, shut down the path, shuts down a pathway. What they want to basically do with this mRNA technology, which is a biologic, is they just basically want to approve the mRNA platform, and then they want to be able to reprogram it over and over and over again with whatever they want, and just have it approved once, right? Like they don't want to go through this regulatory is, process over that, and over. That again. is that is the vaccine model. So you know, with the flu vaccine, once they have the platform approved. Then they they so they have the delivery platform, but they just attach a different vi- the seasonal you know viruses to it each year, and they don't have to go through the approval process. The assumption being so th- so they're they're really trying to copy with the MNRA and telling us it's a vaccine model instead of a biologic that you know we should be studying for decades before we allow it on the market. Yeah. So that so they they do have a precedent for that. Well, no, and I think that's why, because, you know, when they were looking at mRNA technology for gene, like as gene therapy, which is the proper designation, and they were looking at it for cancer, you know, the FDA regulations is like, you know, 10 to 15 years of safety testing for that stuff, because the, 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 the types of side effects are so unpredictable and, and they can be long-term. They're very, very difficult to, to navigate. And so you need to, test the crap out of these things before you would ever give them to humans so there's no viable economic model i mean if 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 Mm -hmm. you've got a 20-year patent on something and they tell you you have to study it for 15 years before you can get to market it's a non-starter so and and that's that was the topic of today like why it was you know why why i thought or still think that the changes being brought in you know to natural health products and then you you were discussing how they're relaxing the the um the regulations for the chemical drugs this is all this is all tied together in my mind so what's and i'll just briefly share what you know what's happening it's called the self-care framework but it's just part of these 
they're, they're creating a regulatory pathway that will be, and you've already brought this up, kind of internationally harmonized, but it, it, it allows for this protection of intellectual property rights. And I think part of it is, is getting rid of the, the, the natural health products. So what, what they're doing with the natural health products, and, and they, they came out with this in 2017, but it was for, for bureaucrats with ties to international trade. So they just want to harmonize it so they're regulated the exact same way as the chemical over-the-counter drugs. So, but to do that, they have to soften the regulation of the chemical over-the-counter drugs. With natural health products, you can use traditional use evidence for efficacy. And you know, nobody's done a study on how much, but I'm guessing about two-thirds or to three-quarters, even of our monograph products, they've gotten through the efficacy hurdle using traditional use evidence. And the reason why they've had to allow that in the past is there's no intellectual property rights. Like it all comes down to intellectual property rights. It all like comes down to, so just, just for, to remind the listeners what you mean by that is that if you can patent something, which means that nobody else can create it, that's where the money is. Yeah, you get exclusive rights to sell it. So, 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 so that's, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the gold mine for the pharmaceutical industry. And, and let me... Yeah. Let me explain to the public the problem. So, I, I mean, I had an expert on the stand. This is a few years ago, and I asked him, on average, how much does it cost to get through the new drug approval process? And the answer was, you know, a billion dollars. Now, so, it, and I know it can be done for less, but the point, the point, Alan, and it can be done for a lot more depending on what condition we're going for. But do you, do you want to chime in on well, the cost? I mean, the, the, the billion dollar uh, figure, which is, um, there was actually a, a book written a number of years ago called the 800 million dollar pill this is before the bill where the claim was it cost 800 million dollars to develop and test a drug to 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 get it to market and that was so wildly exaggerated probably by 10 times it because it simply doesn't cost as much as they claim it costs that's that's what i'm saying yeah um, no no but how much do you think the average cost is for a serious condition to get through the new drug approval process? It's impossible to say. I, I, well, I, I, I would think, say, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it also depends, right? Because, I mean, if you look at, at cancer therapy, like, you know, some of these more toxic biologics, they basically start off in late stage cancers. Yes. And then, you know, they have to do a series of phase three trials to move up to people who are more well, like early stage cancer and maybe... You know, I think that there's been a couple times in a couple instances where they've gone to high risk, healthy people. But that's as about as as, you know, that whole process, they'll lose their patent by the time they get, to, yeah. you know, they're really the, the healthy people. But, Ellen, just using your example. So let's say it was 80 million. So yeah. the, the, the problem is just to explain to people the problem. So let's say it's going to take you 80 million dollars to get through the new drug approval process for the condition you want to treat. Yeah. If you have a patent and you go through that process, no one else can make the drug unless you're licensing them and then they're paying you a fee. Right. And so you can charge a higher amount while you're still on patent. Once your patent runs off, now people can compete with you and we call that the generic drug. So yeah. the, the example I like to use is Viagra because when Viagra you know, got through the regulatory process, their advertising was so so effective, not in Canada, but the US, and we watched Canadian yeah, yeah. or US TV back then. Like there were news stories about how much a pill cost 
Yeah. But now that the patent is off and the generic drug is Sindanafil, yeah. they can't charge as much because, you know, Apotex or anyone else can make it, right? So, but a natural health product, you you have no patent on it. Right. So you you don't go through that process because if you did succeed, then anyone can just, it, it, they're all generic drugs because there's well, no patent. You'll never, you'll never get the investors to invest the money to do exactly. the, the clinical research because you're not going to get the money back on the back end, right? So it's a right. non it's a non-starter. Yeah. Like it's it's not but, a viable. But, but but I would argue with natural health products, you don't need as much money on the back end to actually make it effective. Let me give you an example. Have you ever heard of uh, James Lind? He was a he was a a, a a naval officer and surgeon in the Royal Navy. You know. Uh, in the 1780s, and he developed a treatment for scurvy. Lime. Scurvy, was, scurvy was the it was the um, it was the biggest killer of the British Navy. It's because these guys would go for you know multiple year voyages on naval ships, and they would develop this because and they didn't know how, how to treat it. This guy did a randomized controlled trial using six pairs of patients so there were 12 patients in this trial and he determined and some were given seawater some were given something else some were given and the ones that were given lemons and limes their scurvy went away after like a month so a small clinical trial of something that was very effective basically saved the royal navy it's why everyone and it's why we all speak english around the world is because they were able to cure scurvy in the Royal Navy before other countries did. And, and he did that on the basis of a small clinical trial of something that was very effective. In this case, it was a natural health product called vitamin C. He didn't know what that it was, but it was. And so you just think of how many things are out there that are on the same level as, as whatever's in oranges and limes mm -hmm. and lemons that could really substantially improve people's health, but nobody's studying them because they can't patent them. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah, just on, just on that note, like if you actually look at that test, that test is, you know, if you provide sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits outweigh the risks and there's nothing else that is yeah. used to treat that or indicated to treat that, then you can get this special approval called an advanced therapeutic path products yeah. pathway approval, right? So you get this, yeah. this, alternate test so you get to go through the back door and circumvent the harder higher test of proving efficacy and safety but i think the other thing that everybody needs to know is that pharmaceutical companies will make more money if they can eliminate their competition right yes. so you get so everybody competes for a market right so let's just say the market for breast cancer is you know 10 fingers whatever it is and like two of those people are using natural healthcare products and, you know, one of them is using generics. If you can get rid of people being able to use natural healthcare products and generics, then when you get your fancy new designer drug, your advanced therapeutic product pathway drug approved, then you get, you get to clean up, right? So this is standard operating practice to eliminate uh, your competition. Absolutely. And, if, and if you've got a, a major, major multi-billion dollar market in antipsychotics, used for almost everything and then some small player comes along with an effective natural treatment that treats schizophrenia or bipolar and is very effective they will go out of the way to crush the competition that's right that's so, so i think we're all saying the same thing so this is this is like and it's funny i 
I'm just going to segue. So, Alan, you know, it, it took me probably about 10, 15 years to figure out that this our drug regulations were to protect intellectual property rights. And when you said that at the NCI, I mean, I couldn't run up and, you know, give you a hug because I was at the council stand, but I wanted to. It's kind of like, okay, you know, so, you know, you kind of became my personal hero at that point. But, you know, what we had a couple of witnesses testify about, you know, things like vitamin D and other natural products that boost the immune system, like James Lenny comes to mind and um, Bourgeau and Saskatoon comes to mind. So, um, and I know there were others, but we had we had witnesses talking about that. And I think I think what we're we're seeing because it's not just in the area of, of natural health products, but I think we're seeing basically um, the regulatory bodies moving us into a position where we're not we're not going to have this competition and and how it's happening with natural health products. And I just I just want to make sure that the audience understands is if we impose the chemical drug model as the only model. And so we're forcing products to have to go through a fairly strict level of, you know, clinical evidence that's expensive. It's just not going to happen right. where yeah. you don't have intellectual property rights. So we're making a policy decision. No, you know, likely influenced because of economic factors is what seems to be coming out in this discussion. But we're making a policy decision to only have patented drugs or at least drugs that had a patent when they went through the process. Yeah. as the only option. So like, that's the effect of what's happening. So the next time we have a pandemic or going forward with, you know, COVID, we're not going to have those options because we're making a policy decision to have a model that excludes them. But I think, I think that we have to remember what's happening. Like the people who are in charge and who the government is consulting with are people who are part of global corporations with branded products who are looking to make it easier for them to push their novel therapies forward in the future right so what they're doing is they're you know like if you actually look at the person who is receiving the comments for the food and drug regulations when they were proposing them and there was like this feedback that you could give as a public you had to give your feedback to the director of regulation and innovation, right? <laughs> so he's got two hats now. He's innovation, i.e. his client is, you know, so innovate. So just so that you know, like your audience knows, they use, uh, you know, new drug approvals as innovation. And they call it innovation so that it's got a positive spin to it. So basically, he is the, the director of pushing branded products and the regulatory and as well as as being the director of the regulatory like i'm i'm both the champion yeah. and the gatekeeper for these branded products right it's yeah. just insane so it's complete you, you, regulatory you capture never, never, yeah you would never allow that in any other industry you would never allow um oil executives to decide on i don't know climate change policy we would just wouldn't we just wouldn't allow it so why do we do it in the in the world of pharmaceuticals yeah, i mean I the area mean, of health it's ridiculous. Yeah, so so we know that that the gatekeepers are now pro-branded drugs, right? Yeah. And so now the the tricky thing that they do, and this is really an interesting tactic that they use, is instead of, you know, again, it's all about what you focus on and getting people to focus on what they want to have you focus on so that they get the advantage. So it's all about controlling what you focus on. Like for instance, 
you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, they had you focus on COVID deaths. So you'd be scared out of your pants. Right. And then once they got you connected to the fact that COVID was a killer, then they actually had you focus on case rates so that you saw them go up and they go down. And then you'd be like, bring me, like, lock me in my house and save me. And, you know, like, so it's, it's, they're really controlling, they control, it's like hypnosis, what they want you to want you to focus on. Right. And so what they really want you to focus on for these particular shots is they want you to um, oh my gosh, I've just lost my train of thought. It's so funny. I had it and now I've, mm-hmm. I've lost it. But um, it, the, the end point is, oh my gosh, I can't remember. The, 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 you you're probably going to talk about the PCR test. They wanted to say whether it reduces. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you were talking about how they kept moving the needle on what we were focusing on. Cause yeah. you know, and you had gotten to the, you know, they're focusing now on deaths. So, yeah. So, Oh, I know what I was saying. So thanks, Axelia, that just did it. So one of the tricks that they use is they basically get you to stop focusing on whether something's efficacious and they get you to prove and to focus on that it has evidence or not, right? So it's a little, it's like a little bit of a trick that they use, right? So then they'll basically say like, say for instance, natural acquired immunity for the COVID-19 time. Well, we know if you just looked at the stats for 2020 that the death rate was 0.01. So we can assume that the survival rate or that natural acquired immunity is very effective because mm-hmm. very few people actually died and most people got through it, right? So we can just, you know, just using common sense and looking at those numbers, we can say natural acquired immunity is very efficacious, right? We and, could all and wasn't, it, wasn't it Dr. Pellick that did, that figured out that there was widespread natural immunity yes. in the population? Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. more people had caught COVID and recovered um, than we had thought, actually. Yeah. yeah, but then, so then the pharmaceutical company basically denied that natural, like it, it wasn't even a non-starter. Nobody even talked about it. Why? Because there was no evidence. There was no phase three trial proving that, you know, there was no evidence to say that natural acquired immunity was better. And why did they want to get rid of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Because they didn't have the evidence. It's not that they weren't efficacious. It's just that they didn't have the evidence. So by getting you to focus on the evidence, that means that then you have to do the clinical trials, which means that you have to have the investment, which means that you have to have the patent. So getting the focus to go to evidence, they get to eliminate all the competition just by nature of the fact that there's no economic model there. Now, that's how they're organizing and they're getting us to focus on it. And that's why they're getting the regulators now because the regulators are on their side to then raise the bar for evidence because they know that then nobody will be able to get over that standard because they don't have the investment. And that's how they're going to eliminate their competition in terms of natural, you know, natural health products. Right. And that's how they're going to get rid of their competition in terms of non-branded drugs. Now, from a, a just a common sense point of view and what's always been the case, and even in cancer therapies, is that as long as you can prove safety, then you should be able to do whatever you want. You can, you know, because then, you know, once we can say that lemons and limes are safe, then, you know, this, this gentleman scientist that you were talking about in the Royal Navy, he should Mm -hmm. be able to do as many experiments as he wants. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even use anecdotal evidence to basically posit a Mm -hmm. hypothesis and, and make a treatment recommendation because nobody has anything to lose, especially if the things don't cost very much. Right. Right. You raise a good point. Yeah. So because it's the problem is, is when we impose the chemical drug model, which presumes everything to be dangerous and ineffective, 
which makes sense for novel chemicals. Yeah. But it, it doesn't make sense. I think you've you've really raised a good point, Deanna. Yeah. Yeah. No. So that the the standard should be, and it always has been, as long as something's safe, then you can basically have a lot of latitude in terms of efficacy, and you can experiment and you can try yeah. stuff because there's no there's no downsides, which is very different than I mean I deal with pharmaceutical companies or products particularly related to cancer, which tend to be more toxic. Yes. So we're yeah. we're all about the safety. We're like, oh my gosh, you've got to prove it upside down and sideways that it's safe, yeah. that's the number one thing. And then of course, effective because these things cost a lot and you don't want anybody to be swindled. But that's not even an issue whenever it comes to um, to natural acquire, natural health products. But yeah. you know that you have your regulatories, regulatory bodies in the pockets of big pharma when they basically start getting you to focus on evidence, yeah. right? Uh, whenever yeah. they get to, when they shift the focus to evidence and, oh, you don't have the evidence to say that, like they did with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know that that's global pharmaceutical companies that are moving the hands of internet or national regulators. And of course, they say that it's harmonization. You know, yeah. what it's really is we're going to move the ability to control things all the way up into the hands of, you know, NGOs which are controlled by pharmaceutical companies or people who have pharmaceutical interests, right? Yeah. So I'm just, yeah. I'm just wondering, because we're, you know, we're an hour and 36 minutes in, yeah. and, and the thought just occurred to me that, that one way for us to tie this up would be for each of us, you know, if we were going to make recommendations, because remember the NCI is about, you know, the commissioners are actually working on the report right now, and they're charged with, coming up with positive recommendations on how to th do things differently. Now, we're all in the drug approval world. If we were going to make recommendations that Health Canada had to follow on how, you know, for the COVID-19 vaccine, things could have been done differently. I'm curious. I know what recommendations I would make, you know, in addition to <laughs> don't create a new test that's political and has nothing to do with health. Uh, do you guys have any recommendations that, that you'd like, you know, that, you know, if we did this again, um, would make a positive difference for Canadians. Um, I'll, I'll just, if you don't mind if I start, I would just say that when any a new disease comes around, the main thing that people need to know is what is your potential, what is the potential harm? And I think with COVID, we people never really learned that the infection fatality rate, the IFR, which is the number of people who got infection, infected and then died was so low. So in my age category, it might have been 0.02%. So two out of maybe 10,000 people. Like people need to know that the, the, the absolute number of risk. And I, I would say that, that you don't say, oh, you're going to die from COVID. No, no, you say, what is my potential? And this is the question I've asked in all of my books, whether they've been on cholesterol lowering, osteoporosis, high blood pressure, what is your risk to start with? Or what is your potential for harm of this new disease or whatever? And I think if people became more literate, they wouldn't be so so um, um, manipulated by the hype and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and manipulated by the scaremongering, the fearmongering. So that, that's one thing. And so, I mean, I've got many, but the, the other thing that I would say is that you got to get the money lenders out of the temple. And what I mean by that is that anyone who has conflicts of interest, whether it's in drug regulation, drug approval, uh, 
national uh, uh, vaccine committees that have ties to pharmaceutical companies. No, no, no. That is That should be completely allowed. We don't allow people to sit on juries when the jury members related to the judge or to the defendant. We just don't allow that. Why? Because we recognize that that it's important that for a person to get a fair trial, they need to have unconflicted people on the jury. And we have so many juries in in this in this in the in the world of health and medicine where the people are conflicted. If we just get rid of that to start with, we would have a much cleaner and more trustable system. Right now, the trust in public health is so profoundly low after COVID that then it's understandable because we have we have broken that trust in many ways. We have to rebuild it. And the way we do that, you got to get the uh, the conflicted people out of the decision-making bodies, period. Mm. Yeah. I would probably uh, second what Alan was saying. Um, however, <laughs> you know, one of the things when we're, when we're writing guidelines is that, you know, all the people who contribute to a paper have to disclose their conflicts of interest. And those are generally limited to, you know, it has anybody who could benefit from, um, you know, the the outcomes of this guideline, you know, have some sort of competing interest, you know, and make sure to declare them. And that it can be a financial interest. But um, I think that that things that we don't know are that there's these silent players in this game of com competing interests. And pharmaceutical companies are definitely one of them and they're everywhere. So, you know, making sure that anybody who makes a recommendation has to say whether they've been given money from a pharmaceutical company. Like I would love it if the media, when they would say that the COVID, you know, such and such COVID-19, and we've just received, you know, a billion dollars of advertising from pharmaceutical companies. Like they, you know what I mean? If they, if they, if they basically did some sort of report, they would have to write at the bottom, you know, these are the advertising dollars that we got from this actual, you know, company that that supported it so i think you know media should declare that public health should declare that you know anybody who makes any recommendation dr joe schmo from the emergency department that they had you know should pay the fact that he was actually a paid advert right like all of these people should be saying that they were given money to do this so for sure like all these hidden costs um that showed up, you know, and, and if all of a sudden everybody's like, and I was paid to say that, and I was paid to say that, and I was paid to say that, then all of a sudden it would be very difficult to create this illusion of, of disaster that they need to in order to be able to push their, their shots. And because they speak through public health and because they speak through the media and they don't see the, just the talking head of the pharmaceutical executive, um, you know, they think, oh, that that person's for me. So I think that that would help out with that. But I think the other thing that we need to remember is that these global pharmaceutical companies have reached down into our government and our government is is doing their bidding and is trying to work for their benefit to attract their dollars to, you know, to Canada in order to make jobs. I don't really know what it is. But if you look at all of the federal documentation, they're basically saying we want to be good global citizens. We want to attract their dot. Like we want to basically do the bidding of these global money, you know, uh, money giants and pharmaceutical giants. So 
and, and big tech. So they're pandering to them. And so they're no longer pandering, like they're no longer have our best interests in mind. There's competing interests. And you can see that through all the public private partnerships. And more recently, um, you know, I think there was a $1.1 billion innovation fund that a pharmaceutical that uh, the government launched during COVID. And that was to help with the COVID pandemic. But 600 million of those dollars went to building biomanufacturing plants for pharma. And so we're in crisis, right? We're locked in our houses and they're giving $600 million to, you know, pharmaceutical companies to build biomanufacturing facilities that'll never even be ready by the time the pandemic's still going, right? Like they're liars. Like they just, they basically gave our money away. And now more recently, they've given 2.2 billion more dollars to build pandemic preparedness hubs that are public private partnerships with all these big pharmaceutical companies that they want to push their vaccines. And there's five of them across the country. And our, our taxpayer dollars, our federal government is basically, you know, giving the capital to establish these hubs and get a foothold to, to, to pharmaceutical companies in, in our university. So what they're doing is like, for instance, like, Public health is the marketing arm of the pharmaceutical company now, right? Um, the, the federal government is the investor. They don't even have to get investment anymore. And now our public institutions, our higher learning institutions are now going to be the research and development arms of the global pharmaceutical companies. So if we think that we are in control or that they're working for us, I think... I think we've got like we've just got to think about this again. And so we have we have to root the these guys out. What, the what recommend, would you the recommendation the recommendation is for Canadians to understand that this is going on, that they've been sold out, and to put a stop to it, to vote differently, and also not to trust any of these guys. So if you want to pull out an infectious disease expert from one of these pandemic preparedness hubs, guess what he's gonna say? Novel vac novel vaccine XYZ is the best thing since sliced bread because if he doesn't, he's going to get fired, right? Yeah. So we don't we don't have any independent experts anymore because they've been bought out. So you know when it comes to the next round, we just have to <coughs> think differently. We we cannot be blindly trusting all of these people, and we need to be seeing it for what it is. It's you know an orchestrated marketing campaign designed in you know global Netherlands that have been you know, infiltrated and, and, and prepared. Um, and, you know, they're, they're laying groundwork to do this again. So, you know, I think you're doing a great job, Sean, and, and raising awareness yeah. and, and we need to keep talking about it. And, and we need to basically make sure that Canadians are informed and that they have the option to choose differently, because once we know it's happening, we won't trust blindly anymore. Yeah. And then we may even have some political will to change. Right. But if you don't know what's happening, you can't do that. And so transparency and education, I think are, are absolutely key. Yeah, well, and I'd, I'd actually say you guys are both doing a, a, you know, a really good job at bringing awareness. So let's, let's spread that around. And, and the beautiful thing about the NCI is it's just all the volunteers that make it happen. But I'll, I'll tell you what, what uh, my recommendation would be. And it, it's frustration with allowing the pharmaceutical companies to design the trials to yeah, basically okay. get the outcome they want. And, you know, you guys have both touched on that. Like, for example, Alan... You know, saying, well, they they picked healthy people type thing that were younger. 
So my recommendation would be, and this would apply for all new drug approvals, is that you don't allow the pharmaceutical company to present you with a clinical trial. Rather, you provide the funding for Health Canada to <clears throat> run clinical trials. So, but the first thing is, is that the, the trial design is published so people can comment on it publicly. Yeah. And, then, and then Health Canada hires somebody else to run a clinical trial, you know, with a published trial design that's been scrutinized um, by the public first. So because that, that eliminates a lot of the gaming, that would be my recommendation, because then we would get more robust evidence from the trial. Yeah, and I, and Sean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you that there was another uh, food and drug recommendation change that occurred and it's called, um, and it's the ability to use adaptive clinical trial design. Um, so I, I don't know if you know what that That's means. Or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isn't that great, right? Like, it's like, we don't want to do a clinical trial. So we'll call it an adaptive clinical trial. But, but they actually what that what they did is they, they approved that. So whenever the interim order, not only did it lower the test or change the test that they could use for the COVID-19 shots, it basically changed the standard by which the trials they could run. So, you know, I don't even know if you know, you know this, but you have a preclinical phase that basically proves that it's safe for use in humans and animals and tissue. Yeah, the animal cells. testing. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you have the clinical trial phase where, you know, once we've proven it's safe, then we can use it in humans. But, you know, these adaptive clinical trial designs allow you to do it all at the same time because you can be testing humans and animals all at the same time just for efficiency because you want to, you know, in, improve your innovation. Right. So I, you want to get the drug to market faster. So you just like, you know, just, you know, maybe skip some of the preclinical testing and anyway, so, and then, you know, you can just combine your phase one and your phase two. And what all of this to say is that, um, you know, what they're doing with these trial designs, like if you look at the, the design of the trials that they did in kids for these COVID-19 shots, it was descriptive statistics. There wasn't any real statistics to them. They basically just used immune antibody titers and use that as their statistical endpoint, and the rest was descriptive. So these these trials are are not even real phase three trials. They're just like fate glorious glorified phase two trials. So they've actually eliminated the need for phase three trials wow. with this approval of this adaptive clinical trial design for these, you know, for these advanced therapeutic products. So, I mean, I know that you're 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 wanting to say, you know, rigorous mm -hmm. phase three trials that are scrutinized by the public and independently subsidized, which I think is fantastic. And I think that we should be subsidizing, you know, research for healthcare health products. Like why shouldn't we be using that six, what, $3.3 billion that the government yeah. has to, to run clinical trials for mm. vitamin D, you know what I mean? Like, I think we'd, that mm. would go, we'd get way more bang for a buck. Right. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it's funny. Yeah. I, you know, pre COVID, you know, I would describe our drug, you know, approval process as the biggest fraud perpetrated on the Canadian public ever. But, you know, post-COVID, it's like, oh my gosh. That it's the second so biggest. Good. It's so good <laughs> compared to what we have now. So Yeah, I know. I want it back, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, guess, uh, I guess it's those competing interests, right? But I think that we just have to stand up and we have to demand stuff. We have to get educated and we, because they can't get away with it if we say no, if we close the pocket, you know, if we close our bank book and we say no more money for you, 
you know, using our, you know, voting, or if we basically say, you know, that's just not right, and we stand up, then they don't have any ability to move forward. It's only whenever they're, they effectively censor us and, and people don't understand, right? Like, I don't know, I was just, I would just went to a family gathering. And, uh, you know, I, I lost my sister to the COVID-19 shots early in the pandemic. She was one of the first casualties of the vaccine. And, you know, it's just a 56-year-old woman and her heart failed, right? Dead right before we came to our family gathering. So I was at another family gathering now just two years later. And I was told that my, my brother-in-law has basically had a stroke at 53 and has, you know, impaired eyesight and can't function, right? These, you know, they're, they're allowing toxic therapy, high-risk therapy to get through without proper testing. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things. It's like a ticking time bomb. They're just, you know, they, people who keep getting these shots, they're basically going to, um, anyways, it's kind of like, it's not one of those things. Like on, on one hand, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's really bad. But I mean, there's a real urgency to stop this stuff because they're still pushing these COVID-19 shots you know, on a seasonal basis, some people still believe it. And they've got more coming down, like the, the amount of mRNA vaccines in, in um, development now, RSV vaccines, flu vaccines, Sanofi just announced that they want to move all of their vaccines over to an mRNA technology platform. Because, you know, one and done, right, you just get it approved once and you can just you know, do as many variations as possible. And you don't even have to do all the rigorous testing anymore. So we've got ourselves a tsunami of toxicity coming down the pipe. You know, this isn't getting better. This is getting worse. And we've got a little bit of time to try and stop this. So anyway, Sean, I appreciate your efforts. And Alan, it sounds like you've been, you've been, uh, you know, raising your voice too. And I think that's what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and sorry, sorry for your loss there. I'm, yeah. And it's uh, and I think that what you're talking about, um, you know, that we really have to stop this. It, I, I'm I'm feeling the same way. Is is I'm actually feeling you know culpable because I'm still pretending that you know the emperor has clothes when the emperor doesn't, and and I'm grieved that we're still injecting children when there's just simply no justification and and it's it's because we're not all just saying no this has to stop like we're really we're not raising our voice about this and we have to start so um because the problem is 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 we are still we are still injecting people so mm-hmm. i mean i live in alberta we're injecting people of all ages including young kids and yeah. And you remember what we learned at the NCI, like with the people vaccine injured. And I, I didn't realize this until the hearings that they're being treated like lepers. Yeah. The medical system can't accept that they exist because the vaccine is safe and effective. And it's, but then we're not having our best and brightest figure out, well, how do we mitigate this? How do we help them? How do, yeah. you know, the, those that have, you know, it, it hasn't manifested yet, but it's a ticking time bomb. How do we stop that and keep them healthy? Like, we really like the problem is is we're causing harm by not doing anything. So I, I think we all need to do some some soul searching on that, and mm-hmm. um, and start stepping out and understanding that our actions make a difference. So I really appreciate you saying that. So so yeah, just a, a last moment too there, Sean. One of one of the the problems is that they've profiled pregnant women as high risk, 
Uh, and so they're going to be the last ones. Like, I mean, they might stop in children because everybody's agreeing that they're lower risk. And even the World Health Organization's come out and said, stop injecting the kids. Like, what's wrong with you? You know, like when the, the World Health did Organization's, they yeah, they did. No, no, they did actually say that. Um, but but for pregnant women, they're they're still all kind of crazy in the mind that they're high risk. And, and so they're continuing to inject them. And, you know, the 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 precautionary principle is the dominant principle when it comes to uh the use of of novel agents in pregnancy where you absolutely have to test the safety through multiple years like not only through the full child development in the womb or gestational development but out a number of years to make sure that these things are, are not toxic and i don't know if you saw that report recently there was a uk report of of heart disease or heart failure in, in in newborns in the UK, like it, it hit the headlines, um, you know, because they're continuing to inject women. But, you know, at the CCCA, one of the things that we've put together is a whole educational resource for expectant parents mm. um, and, a, and a fantastic new video that basically talks about the lack of data uh, of these particular shots in uh, expectant, you know, in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And, and it's a resource that's available to parents. So, I mean, if people at the NCI or any of your listeners are, are willing to, you know, join and raise their voices to protect uh, these these unborn children and their moms uh, from from potential harm from these toxic therapies that are being promoted as vaccines, you know, that would be something that's totally so, actionable. So you, so you guys have materials on that that people could share with yeah. other people? Yeah, we just launched a protect pregnancy and breastfeeding campaign last week, and and we have a dedicated web page up at CCCA on that topic with an absolutely fantastic video. Um, it's about ten minutes long, and it just goes through just how ridiculous the data is to that they're using to push these shots in in pregnancy. So, I, I would highly recommend it. And then there's like a, a highly referenced resource guide that kind of breaks down all the data so that, you know, no matter what level you are, if you're just an expectant parent, parent that just wants to see a video or, you know, a healthcare, somebody in healthcare that wants all the references and all the data, you know, we've got you covered. So. Okay. So there's, so there's resources there. Okay. Yeah, and that's, yeah. is it ccca.ca or is it Canadian COVID Alliance? It's at Canadian COVID care Alliance.org. And okay. it's forward slash protect pregnancy. There it is. Okay, great. Once you hear through that. Okay. Yeah. So that, that makes it easier for people. And so yeah. we're just about at two hours. So I really, you know, any any yeah. final parting thoughts? And my I, I just have to say I so enjoyed this conversation. I I was so looking forward to it and I'd love to do this again. Because yeah. it's just yeah. when you get the chance to have, you know, this type of conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I actually, I learned, a, I learned a lot. It was great meeting you, Alan. And of course, yeah. it's always a pleasure, Sean, because, you know, there's lots to talk about. But, you know, it would probably be, you know, I, there's a lot to unpack here. And they've got a, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, once they created that back door, that advanced therapeutics product back door, all that they have to do is, is, you know, silently in the background, expand that back door. And so, you know, what they have coming up is that all infectious disease agents, you know, all that you have to be is an infectious disease agent, and you're going to get through this back door. So the standards are, are, are really low. And, you know, and it can be the edict of the public health officer or the minister of health, right? It's like, I bless the product, you know, I don't know, like, 
what kind of you know back end they've got going on but <laughs> it, it, it's quite something I, I have to share I learned a lot on this call also so yeah. it's just kind of and you know like I know we all testified on on the types of things that we're talking about but this is a little different when we actually kind of like back and forth and have a conversation so I've I've really enjoyed this and I think yeah. I think both of you for for participating yeah. um, and so I'll, but it is, <laughs> we'll have to do it again. Yeah, so Sean, when, is, when is the report coming along? So, okay. So I'll talk about that for the public and then don't, don't log off when Gareth, you know, or Garrett shuts us off um, stay on and we can debrief. But so um, it's hard to say, so we're having dialogue with the commissioners, but understand they're independent of us. So, and you know, it, it ends up, this was a pretty big, project like it's fine for them to say oh you know what we're going to review the evidence of the witnesses like there's over 300 of them and uh, <laughs> so yeah so right you know we're hoping that you know we'll we'll have it sooner than later but we don't have a firm date although i you know i'm i'm assured that they're all working quite hard at it and and i know like so the the nci men like so we're we're kind of like chomping at the bit because Remember, the mandate of the NCI is to, you know, to try and get the positive recommendations adopted by government. Well, that's going to be a lot of work for us. And um, so actually, you reminded me because I just about forgot is I'm supposed to put in the bug of the public's ear. Um, we're going to be having a campaign to ask the public to give their suggestions to us on how they think to, to get the report out. And then the strength of the NCI has been actually just that people have been taking it upon themselves to do things that are needed to be do it as we go along. So it, it really is going to have to be a group effort, but um, I, I can't give you a firm date because, you know, I don't That's have a one. big undertaking. undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, it is. And it's a big commitment by the commissioners. And I think we all need to be thankful for like, even them going, you know, it was 24 days of hearings over like two and a half months. And like for a large part there, it was every week, like it was, it was so disruptive on them. And uh, I thought they'd really conducted themselves well. And it, it's already been a big commitment. I'm very proud of them. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. No, we're very mm. appreciative. Yeah. So on that happy note, I'll just say on behalf of everyone, uh, thank you. On behalf of the National Citizen Inquiry, thank you for participating and watching. And and this this matters because you participate and we just thank you so good night everyone okay thank you thank you thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the national citizens inquiry it's so important to get the testimonies of canadians out there so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in as always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.